This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy, the premier Sunday morning medical show in the Southern Hemisphere. And uh, what a show do we have for you this morning, this Mother's Day morning, no less. We have the lovely Anabolics who's going to talk about recovery and resilience and uh, how can we overcome adversity and grow in the process. And that's a theme we've sort of touched on in the past here and uh, we're going to have a a little look at that again. And uh, SK, our enfant terrible, is going to take a look at that amazing show on Stan, Better Call Saul, and in particular, what is the affliction that overcomes Butch? He's allergic to all things... Chuck. uh, Chuck. Chuck. (laughs) Chuck. Butch. Chuck. Allergic to all things electrical. And uh, um, then I'm going to have a quick look at, uh, at the dark side of motherhood. Maybe it's not all roses. All that and the masterful skills of Kentus Maximus uh, on the control panel. And uh, so on this very special Mother's Day morning, it's pouring outside, it's miserable, it's bleak, but we've all come in here and uh, we're here doing our job. But please, for all the mums, lie back in bed, fluff those pillows, gag on the burnt toast and the soggy cereal made with love by your wee bairns and enjoy the next hour of of radiotherapy. Three triple R. Well, it's been a big week, and anabolics, you're looking, well, you know, you. <laughs> You're such a, you're so youthful. I mean, who would have thought? I'll make you coffee, all right. I'll do it. Have <laughs> a <Atta> girl. <laughs> Thank you, Meg Zivin. How are you? You well? Yeah, I'm pretty well. I'm pretty well. Well, I had the, the privilege of sitting at home yesterday evening and watching my Melbourne demons. Uh, um, have a victory, which is uh, just a lovely, a sweet thing. A sweet Beating thing. up on the Gold Coast Suns, there's nothing like it, is there? Our traditional rivals, no yes. less, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can I just say one thing? I want to say happy Mother's Day to my mum, who's listening this morning. Happy Mother's Day to a fabulous mother who's taught me so much in life, and also to my daughter, who's a mother this year, and I'm sending her in my love too. And uh, I want to send very best wishes to uh, my mother, who's listening online uh, in the Scottish Highlands, no less. And uh, I'm sure, I mean, it'll be a crackling reception over there, but uh, all the best to you, and not mother to be, Not to be outdone, uh, my mother is in the habit of listening, having nothing better to do on a Sunday morning, so uh, good morning to her and happy Mother's Day too. With all, oh, with, with a great deal of affection there. And, <laughs> and now, uh, in the news, in the news... Um, I've got something in the news. I haven't trotted out a Frankston story for a while, but uh, I saw this in this morning's age and I thought, oh, this is such a Frankston story. But uh, a man has been diagnosed with a rare disease caused by daily cannabis use after a wound on his big toe would not heal. The man, 26, went to Frankston Hospital after an ulcer on his big toe failed to heal. And the first thing that struck me when I read that is there's an appropriate use of our emergency hospital resources. I've got a non-healing ulcer on my toe. It's been there for some months. I'll turn up at 3am on a Saturday morning and you know just see what's wrong via the local emergency department. But uh, the man is believed to have used up to one gram of cannabis per day and a surgeon, Dr David Soon, who saw him at Frankston Hospital, said that the man's daily habit had caused a build-up of plaque around an artery in his big toe. And uh, this daily cannabis use apparently accelerates an inflammatory reaction in the arterial system and can rarely cause a cannabinoid ulcer on the toe. So uh, this fellow's case was subsequently written up and presented at a medical conference and uh, it was hypothesised that perhaps with the uh, impending future legalisation of medical cannabis that m- this might be a disease that we see more of, McZiff. Is it wow. different to getting plaque from just smoking that much? Because you can get um, you know, uh, endo-arterial problems with just smoking, can't you? Is it a different... Well, particularly well, you can. I mean, I guess it's been written up as a separate disorder but you know one assumes that smoking is a risk factor for vascular disease regardless of whether you're smoking uh, high quality bud or bark (laughs) at the end of the day but a a gram of whatever you're smoking per day is a significant quantity apparently and uh, we've got a cannabinoid ulcer in Frankston. Good heavens. Mm. Now I just wanted to get your opinion guys Um, well two things number one 
there was a story in the or reference in the paper today to, to a sort of differentiation between the coalition and Labour over Medicare. So a freeze on um, rebates for GPs and uh, the um, uh, the College of General Practitioners is encouraging all GPs to put signs up in their in their clinics, um, pointing out that fees are going to rise and that this may then inevitably lead to more people presenting at the Frankston Emergency Department uh, for problems that would better be managed by general practitioners. So there's a, a split between a potential split looming between uh, the coalition and Labour. Uh, over Medicare funding. Well, you know, I think it's a, a good point to point out that if uh, GPs' fees are frozen, then, you know, like any other business that's faced with rising costs, rents, staff costs and so forth, that cost either has to be absorbed by the business or passed on to the consumer. Well, up until now, it has been, by and large, absorbed. I mean, I'm, I'm astonished at the rates of bulk billing that there are in the community, and I, I wonder whether this in some way reflects the preponderance of super clinics where doctors are now employees rather than having their own clinics and, and not necessarily having to bear the overheads themselves. I think that is something that people often forget when you look at the um, money that um, doctors, all doctors, including specialists, are earning per hour, um, that it does often cover at least two or three other people who are working for that practice. There's a lady on the front desk, sometimes there's a nurse, sometimes there's an accountant in the front. You know, there's quite a few people who actually depend on that single source of income that sometimes gets forgotten in all the discussion, I think. Mm. But I think it's, it's a bit actually cynical to frame the discussion around uh, this resulting in more people attending emergency departments. At the end of the day, it seems like it's about uh, GPs' incomes, which are uh, being defended through this advocacy, through posters going up in waiting rooms, which is not necessarily inappropriate. But uh, I think the the concern about uh, unwarranted attendances to emergency departments might be a bit of a fig leaf for the major does issue. It, does it apply to specialists as well? Is, I thought it was a total Medicare. It is a total, yeah. yeah so yeah, it's everybody. Yeah. 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 i be interesting to see what effect that has on the, um, the voting intentions of different people. I don't mm, mm. Yeah. And secondly, where coming up to, I mean, we've got our own election here, um, what, what they're talking about, a lengthy, you know, the longest uh, mm. election campaign uh, in, uh, well, in, in recent memory, mm. but the American election campaign drags on and on and on, and we've got the Donald. Mm. Um, thoughts mm. about the Donald? It's, well, it's, it's completely extraordinary. It's like a car crash you can't stop looking at. It really is, a, it really is appealing to, to watch what's happening in, in, a, in a strange, bizarre way because it is just kind of beyond belief that this person who's breaking every single rule of not only political behaviour but interpersonal decency <laughs> and relationship behaviour should be actually the front-runner for the GOP. And I can only think that um, it's good for the, the Hillary Clinton campaign. It's The, the odds seem to be in favour of... If, of her defeating him, but given um, the uh, non-compulsory voting over there, anything could happen. People could stay away. The Bernie, the Bernie Sanders supporters could stay away. Um, uh, you know, we don't know yet what's, what's so... It, it could have 30% of people coming out to vote. Mm. What, what I find equally surprising in all of this is, is not so much the rise of Trump, which is you know, just a travesty, but on the other side, it, I'm surprised that uh, so much vitriol is being directed towards Hillary Clinton as well. It's, it's being framed as an election where both candidates are intensely dislikable and, you know, having seen Hillary operate over many years, you know, her range of social policies seem quite reasonable. She doesn't seem an, an unreasonable politician. I, I struggle to understand why so much hate's being directed at her as well. Mm, it's, uh, it's a very, very it's, it's terrifying, actually, when we when we think about. It. She, I, I was I was also I was quite surprised at how intensely unpopular she is, seeing being seen as uh, as just uh, a lackey of uh, of Wall Street of, uh, of of big money in America. And uh, um, this is and and you know you'd hate to be in uh, in trench warfare against the Donald because he's uh, he he certainly knows how to fight. He's a scrapper. He doesn't let uh, facts get in the way of a good argument. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. All right, we're going to just take a quick break now and we are going to come back to the lovely Anabolics who's going to talk about uh, recovery and resilience. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. 
You're on 3RRR and this is Radiotherapy and uh, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers who are listening and uh, anabolics, recovery. Yeah, thanks, Mixif. Yeah, I thought I'd specifically look today at some practical tips for turning recovery from uh, mental illness into resilience because we hear a lot about these terms and lot, not a lot about how to actually kind of promote and encourage and, and be successful in looking at be- becoming resilient. Um, take, for example, you, let's say you've been through a very difficult period. You're recovering from a severe bout of depression, uh, bout of anxiety, even a first episode of psychosis, and you've emerged out the other side. The worst is behind you, and you're left feeling like you've been hit by a train, but you're back on your feet. Now, I think the first thing to say is that every person reacts differently to this situation. There are no two recovery journeys, if you like, that are alike. They are, uh, but there are a number of experiences that are very, very common. Most people feel quite shocked. These events are often unexpected for people and out of our, they're out of our comfort zone. They often happen when you're in your early twenties at a time when you're not expecting these things to be happening to you. And it can be, it, most people feel quite shocked when they're, when they're recovering from any kind of mental illness. You can feel overwhelmed like you've lost your confidence. Losing confidence is a really common thing you hear people talk about. I just used to be rely on my mind. I used to, Now I don't feel like I'm reliant on anymore and I, they lose their confidence. Your world can feel like it's less certain and like you're standing on really shaky ground and you can feel indecisive, like you can't trust your own judgment. And then nervousness, feeling unfocused, feeling distracted, worrying about the future. All these things can happen, can have a a really big impact on on your recovery. And in particular, every little emotion that happens or every little tiny sign of something has you worrying, oh my God, am I going to go back through this again? Is this going to happen again? I'm just, you know, that sense of uncertainty and nervousness about it is, is is really a worry for a lot of people. And yet most of it is completely normal given the context for everybody goes through a very similar things. So when you look around at the consumer literature, you read about people who've been, um, who've had these kind of episodes and they're talking about building resilience. And I thought, well, you know, what, you know, perhaps we should look at how that translates. How do you get from recovering from something to being, feeling like you're in a resilient position? And that can seem like a very tall order, I think, for a lot of people. So I thought I'd just focus on some practical tips today for building resilience in the aftermath of a breakdown or an episode of illness of some kind, just really practical things. So what is psychological resi- resilience. Have you guys got a thought of what, what, you, what do you think when you hear the word psychological resilience? When I hear it, I think about coping mechanisms and uh, when, whenever an organism is faced with a stress, it sort of invokes a variety of responses to help it adapt to and respond to that stress and uh, coping mechanisms have traditionally been hierarchised from mature coping mechanisms like the use of humour, uh, directing frustration into altruistic acts, you know, a mature response to stress down to primitive stress responses such as self-harm perhaps in an extreme sense. So that's that's what it can just to mind when I hear it. Yeah, that's exactly. I think you, you mentioned a few words there that are key I think because the, the generally accepted definition would be a person's ability to adapt, which is what you said, adapt to stress uh, adversity or negative life events or illness in a way that's positive and functional and has you, as you say finding ways of coping, which is what functionality is all about. So importantly, it doesn't necessarily mean remaining symptom-free. I think this is something that's really important to, to remember, and it doesn't mean you're never going to have any future relapses of, of whatever it took you, you know, into that place to start with. You can build resilience and still not be completely symptom-free or still be facing further episodes. It's about how to prepare and prevent and manage mental health problems so that, if the, so that the impact of them is sort of cushioned. I think that's a really important word. If these are going to happen again, how do you cushion yourself against the impact and the secondary problems that might come from them because you've got to go on with and find meaning and purpose and confidence and you can i'm absolutely convinced that you can if you do a few uh, kind of uh housekeeping things to get yourself in a place where that's going to be um uh able to be done look the first thing i'd say is that most important thing is to recognize that recovery is a thing. It's not nothing. It is a thing. Recovering from mental illness is a specific phase. It's not having a splinter removed from your finger and it all going back to being where it was. It's not having a broken bone and it's healed up and you can walk again. It does It does leave a footprint. Mental illness and episodes of mental illness leaves some kind of footprint for everybody. 
and very few people come through a significant mental illness and simply get back on the horses if nothing had changed. It's very, very rare for that to happen. Uh, so the best place to start to build resilience, I reckon, is to consciously sit down with someone you trust and actually, when you're feeling stronger and a bit better, to reflect on what happened, to review and talk about how your life's been impacted and how you can set yourself up to prepare in case it happens again that's the really important thing just spend some time reflecting on what's happened because it is a process and it does impact you if you don't if you, you don't want it to catch you off guard most psychiatric illnesses have a relapsing and remitting natural course that's the usual thing and what if you've had a, if you've had an episode of illness then there is a statistically increased likelihood that you may have another one sometime in the future that's just kind of a fact of life with these kind of illnesses so as part of the reflection, the first thing to notice is that you have survived. You know, by definition, there you are. You've got through one. You've landed on your feet. You've moved into remission. And this, is, this itself is a really great sign for the development of more resilience. To rec- so recognise and celebrate that. You've come through the other side. It's, it's some, many people will say that there's probably no time as bad as the first time because it catches people off guard. So you may be through the worst if you can get yourself into a good place. So all those resilient qualities that got you through can be built on. They are strengths, their natural strengths, and they're things that you did to get yourself where you are now. Secondly, um, look back at the beginning of the episode and particularly with someone you trust like the person who you're working with a psychologist or your GP or a psychiatrist or family and try and do some analysis of what was going on leading up to the uh, initial event for example you might have been tired sleepless overcommitted overworked you were maybe you were experiencing really high levels of stress like you mentioned SK negative life events might have been happening we are using alcohol or drugs that might have contributed to the onset of symptoms that's might be something that was there in, in the in the beginning what were the triggers or the events that immediately preceded you getting sick so if you look at all those factors in the cool light of day you can give yourself a huge you can get a huge amount of information about your own personal situation to help you get prepared for any relapse that's really really important i think to get yourself prepared for the next time because they're going to be highly specific and individual what what led to these problems for you won't be the same as led to with any other person they're unique and very individual are you going to say something? I thought you looked like a... You know, I'm, I'm just thinking about... Um, I mean, there are very strong parallels here with um, uh, with physical illness as well. Yes. yes. And uh, how, how traumatised people can be with, uh, with uh, any sort of... Cr- any state of, of chronic or relapsing ill health. And... Um, a lot of what you're saying there, I think, has to do with the, the, the how, how people deal with with uh, with illness is the, the locus of control, where you yes. locate a sense of um, of mastery. Do you have any mastery over your own destiny? Can you control things, or is everything external to you? And are you just a passive victim of uh, of life as going on around you? Yes, there's actually a bit of evidence both ways on that point, McZiff. I mean, the way the discussion been framed thus far is around personal responsibility to try and build your own resilience. But if you look at the evidence around suicide, for example, there's quite a deal to suggest that societal improvements, uh, improvements in social networks and uh, changes in government policy can actually have a far greater impact on suicide rates than targeting people who are suffering from severe depression in in exclusivity. Uh, For example, if you look at the rates of suicide in older persons, in uh, Western countries over the past 100 years, they have declined decade by decade regardless of any particular advances that psychiatry might have made. You know, the introduction of antidepressants or ECT as treatments haven't appreciably impacted the suicide rate across the population in older people. But what has is the improvement in social supports and services that are available to old people to make them more or better supported the community, things like universal access to healthcare, things like residential aged care services, home care supports, the aged pension. These social changes have done far more to improve resilience across society than individual uh, 
innovations or uh, or changes in personal resilience can be expected to do. So I don't want us to lose sight of the role of, of government and social support in building social resilience as well. I'm, I'm sure that's absolutely true. And I think you can look at this, I guess, this um, discussion that I, the, 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 the lens that I'm putting on it would be how do you maximise those connections, for example? Um, if if uh, lack of social connection, which may have, there may be societal things we can do to improve that. But if that is part of what left me feeling lonely and led me to depression, then how can I maximise it myself? What, what do I do? Do I start to rethink my connections with family or friends or the local, my local group of uh, social support? I think you can look at it from both ways and, and, and it's obviously environment plus, plus personal uh, changes are equally important. I couldn't agree more. And it's a bit depressing that the um, uh, uh, psychiatric stuff doesn't seem to be as important as we all want to think it is. is it? Absolutely. Can I, can I take that one point further, anabolics? <laughs> at the risk of diverting your carefully prepared discussion, but you know, this idea of the recovery model, uh, which is, I guess, what you're talking about, where it, it throws some degree of responsibility onto the individual for building resilience and guarding against relapse and so forth, this is a model that's being imposed on public acute mental health services as well. And to me, working within those systems for many years, it seems a bit unrealistic. Uh, mental illness is very much like, or the burden of mental illness at least, is very much like a, a pyramid. There's the apex, which deals with people who are the most severely ill. And the, the vast majority of mental illness occurs at the base of that pyramid with as much more scope for recovery. If, if you like. And one of the perversities around acute mental health in the public system is that the only people who are seen as being ill enough to warrant an inpatient bed are almost by definition those who are so sick that there's really very little hope for long-term recovery in well, a meaning sense of the world other than symptom control, which is quite a different thing. I'm, I've, you notice I've just rolled up my sleeves and I'm just going to throw these notes because you and I are going to have a discussion about this. I disagree with you completely. Well, I, I work in an aged psychiatry service where most of the people I deal with have chronic neurodegenerative diseases which by definition are on a trajectory towards a terminal event. I find it very hard to impose a meaningful model of recovery on that patient group beyond, you know, maximising quality of life well, given the constraints. you're talking about the model of recovery that we probably grew up with in, un in university, which is that getting, uh, being symptom-free, working towards being symptom-free, which is not what I would describe as being the type of recovery that you're, you're saying that we're, we're being uh, f forced upon. I, d I disagree that it's being forced, by the way. But anyway, um, it's, it's about dealing with what is happening to you with as much self-agency as you can muster, with as much, with as much optimism and um, positive um, outcomes, as many positive outcomes as you can get in the situation you're on. It does not mean, and if you talk about something like um, you know, motor neurone disease, well, of course, you know, we know what the end of that is going to be, but we're talking about psychological illnesses and even people with significant um, psychological problems that are remitting and relapsing and may continue to do that can move to a place where they feel much more empowered. I'll give you an example. I, um, <clears throat> I uh, remember a lady I looked after for many years who had a very severe recurrent relapsing depression and I looked after her for about 10 years and um, she went through the most awful depressions I've ever seen. She was, I saw her actually in a private setting but she was in and out of hospital all the time and she was profoundly suicidal on many occasions. Everything we tried didn't seem to work. I felt absolutely hopeless about, you know, I, I thought I must have been a really useless psychiatrist. And I went to, uh, I was going to leave to go to America for two years, so I had to hand her over to someone else. And we had this lovely conversation. I said to her, look, I'm just so sorry that I, I'm just looking at things. I just don't, don't feel like I've really made a lot of difference to you at the course. And she said, you must be kidding, she said to me. You must be kidding. I've been doing, this has been happening for 10 years now. I'm still getting depressed as often as I ever was. That's right. But now I know what's coming. Now I know it's going to pass. Now I know what to do. And now I know what does work. Now I know what doesn't work. Now my family's prepared and they know how to manage me. And now I know what the outcome's going to be and I can look past it. And it just was a revolution to me in what, in what she said. And I, I would fundamentally disagree that reco the recovery I'm talking about has got to do with symptom removal. This is about people feeling like they can manage their illness and get as much agency in their life, as much um, hopefulness in their life as they possibly can, given their circumstances. Yeah, I, I, I am totally with you there, Anabolics, and I, I think... No, I think we're talking about two different groups here. I think that uh, there's... You, you're talking, uh, SK, about uh, a group um, that 
life has has uh, basically determined that this is uh, an inexorable path downhill and it's about managing essentially what is a terminal condition um, th- there's there is the vast bulk of mental illness that uh, that we are dealing with on a day-to-day basis in our in our clinical practices and what you're just saying anabolics about that patient you looked after for all of those years resonates with with me with so many cases uh, I've looked after over the years of people who have had really very very severe illness and for whom the um, the when you're in the consulting room with them, you may not be able to satisfactorily get sort of a, a meta view of what is in fact going on. But one of my patients very um, delightfully informed me um, uh, in, in the midst of this chronic misery, despondency, and a sense of bewilderment that she had in fact not been hospitalized for five years, which was for her an extraordinary sign of the of the success of the of the treatment. I, I thought that this was really um, I, I, I wouldn't have I hadn't even started to, to think like that. But that that's the sort of thing I think I think we, we can measure success in very different ways. We we do move in different worlds us three yeah. and although the, the case that you mentioned the anabolics is you know towards the top of the pyramid and uh, McSiff's made uh-huh. the point about the vast base and there's room for improvement there. Uh, I just think that it's it's you know, in, in some ways, giving people false hope. If you're at that very peak of the pyramid, you've got a chronic, severe, psychotic illness such as schizophrenia. And I see you gave yourself some wriggle room when you referred to uh, the illnesses are up as, the shoulders as psychological illnesses. You know, the, the hardcore psychiatric illnesses like chronic psychosis and severe schizophrenia. You know, to me, they're a, a neurodegenerative and neurological condition. You talked about um, uh, suicide before. You can get a hundred people with severe schizophrenia, and only maybe five or ten percent of you know some particular group of them might be going to commit suicide. I can tell you the ones that are, and they're the ones that lose hope. So I'm going to I'm going to absolutely fight <laughs> for um, therapists of all persuasions to make sure that they do not become uh, a, a burden of a hopelessness for people. I reckon it's important to maintain hope because I've seen people um, with very severe illnesses make incredible changes in their lives. Are you giving me a wind-up? So do I need to whiz through, whiz past this or just move? I'll just make a quick couple of quick comments. When just finishing on um, uh, making a plan for yourself, and one of the big things is once, you, once you've looked at all these kind of aspects of, of, uh, of your life that contributed, and it includes, as, as SK said, the environmental things as well, what things in your environment, what things in your workplace, in your friendship groups, what all those things that are happening, what, what you know, played a role in you getting unwell. Think about making a relapse prevention plan. What happens if you see these things start again. How do I go about minimising my, um, my, my risk factors and maximising all those protective factors that I know got me through and then actually write down your thoughts with somebody, with your psychiatrist, with your doctor, with your family and actually make yourself a plan of what's going to happen with crisis and uh, next time you need help, what sort of care do you want and um, and then what sort of goals how do you set your goals, reset your goals so for example, I mean, if you're, like you mentioned, physical health, you may be wanting to be an Olympic hurdler uh, and you may fracture you may develop a degenerative disease in your hip that means that's not going to happen it doesn't mean you can't have hope for alternative plans alternative goals and that can they can be surprising how um, people can develop beyond where they were and and have fabulous interesting lives so maybe we should talk about the whole recovery thing again because i reckon we've got um really interesting diverse views there Mm -hmm. about it yeah that's uh, fantastic anabolics now You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. SK. Chuck on Better Call Saul. Yes, or Butch, as he was known yeah. in certain, Butch, certain circles. Butch, his friends. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, for, for those of you who are unfamiliar with uh, Better Call Saul as a TV series, it was a spin-off from uh, Breaking Bad, which of course was a fabulous show in its day, and they followed the early career of uh, Saul, Saul... Uh, <laughs> the the dodgy lawyer from Breaking Bad who in a previous incarnation went by the name of Jimmy McGill and uh, 
Better Call Saul shows the backstory of uh, Jimmy McGill and how ultimately, over presumably the evolution of several series, he turns into uh, into Saul, the shonky lawyer. And it's it's a great character arc. We see him starting out as a you know somewhat idealistic uh, public defender who gradually enters into. Uh, escalating circles of corruption and, and you can see the seeds being laid for Fantas- his ultimate it's downfall. It's a fantastic series, isn't it? It's a great fantastic. show and it's, it's full of terrific characters. Oh, it's a wonderful psychological program. And from a from a psychological perspective, it's it's the character of Chuck, Jimmy's brother, who really uh, does it for me. We, he, we see him when he's introduced in series one, uh, living as a virtual recluse, despite our knowledge as the audience that he's a brilliant lawyer and a senior partner in a, a very prestigious law firm that he still has a, an interest in. But his life has been crippled by an illness that he has characterised uh, himself as, a, as an extreme sensitivity to electromagnetic radiation. So whenever he's exposed to electricity in any of its protein forms, he develops a range of symptoms from nausea through to headaches through to extreme lethargy, and it really incapacitates him to the extent that he's modified his life around the existence of this uh, electromagnetic sensitivity. Uh, his house has no electricity in it at all. It's all been disconnected. His lighting is provided by gas lamps. He gets Jimmy, his devoted brother, to bring him food and supplies because he can't go out and frequent supermarkets where electricity might lurk. He can't use the internet because of the wireless frequencies that that might involve. Whenever Jimmy enters his house, he has to leave his mobile phone in the mailbox so as to not aggravate his his brother's condition and whenever uh Chuck does have to leave the house to go and collect mail, for example, you might see him dashing out, wrapped in a space blanket to uh, reflect the electromagnetic rays. So it's really a debilitating condition from Chuck's perspective. But is it, in fact, a real condition? And what could the psychiatric or psychological explanation for his symptoms be? We do get some clues in season one. We see an episode where Chuck is taken to the emergency room and he's cowering on the hospital bed because he's surrounded by uh, medical equipment and he's become almost catatonic because of the exposure uh, that he perceives to this noxious stimulus. Uh, so when he goes catatonic in the presence of this radioactive output as a, as a demonstration of how flawed his condition is, the treating doctor turns off the or turns on the electronically controlled bed that raises up and down whilst Chuck is unaware of her having done that and in response to the bed being turned back on there's no conscious awareness of Chuck that anything has changed so she's trying to demonstrate that his symptoms are basically the opposite of the placebo effect and it's an, an effect called the nocebo effect. Now, the placebo effect, obviously, is when uh, a patient is given a completely harmless, completely inactive pill and generates a positive response in their symptoms in response to something that clearly can have no therapeutic benefit. A nocebo effect is when somebody is exposed to a completely harmless stimulus that has no objective damage-producing potential behind it, but as a result of that exposure, develops symptoms. So it's the opposite to the placebo effect. And uh, this sensitivity to electromagnetic radiation that Chuck perceives is in fact a a relatively well-researched phenomenon that's been studied by bodies as august as the World Health Organization who reviewed over 25,000 relevant scientific studies in 2005 and concluded uh, as follows... uh, Despite the feeling of some people that more research needs to be done, scientific knowledge in this area is now more extensive than for most chemicals. And we, we read about people who, who claim extreme chemical sensitivity as well, or in extreme cases, an allergy to the 21st century, as a current affair might like to put it. But the WHO concluded that current evidence does not confirm the existence of any health consequences from exposure to low-level electromagnetic fields such as we might encounter in 
in our day-to-day lives. And this is not to say that, you know, high-frequency electromagnetic fields such as living under high-tension power lines, for example, might not have uh, harmful effects to health, but low-level electromagnetic fields that we encounter every day do not have this uh, unwanted effect, it would appear. The sort of scientific studies that have been done to debunk uh, electromagnetic sensitivity include uh, double-blind studies where people who claim to uh, to have this sensitivity are uh, exposed to sham electric fields, like they're told that an electromagnetic field has been turned on when in fact it hasn't, and in response to their believing that it's been turned on, they develop symptoms. And equally, when they are told that uh, an electromagnetic field is turned off when in fact it hasn't, their symptoms resolve as well. So it's quite easy to uh, debunk scientifically people's uh, perception of symptoms like this. Despite the the ease with which EMS sensitivity can be disproven, if you like, there's a surprising proportion of people who claim to suffer it. Uh, When various community surveys have been done uh, across different countries, the prevalence has been estimated as being between as low as a few cases per million to up to 5% of the population, I believe, in countries such as Sweden, which does recognise it as a a disorder. There are some psychological theories that have been generated to explain why people might develop this uh, supposed sensitivity. Uh, Some psychologists have suggested suggested that those who are severely affected... uh, you know, are in effect withdrawing from modern society. Uh, they're using the electromagnetic radiation that we're exposed to daily as an excuse to withdraw from the, the otherwise daily pressures of modern life and that the construction of symptoms around this might be a, a psychologically appropriate way of removing themselves from the pressures of modern life. What do you think of that, Anabolics? You're staring sceptically at me. Oh, no, no, that was me just thinking about the issue. I think um, it's interesting because it, it, it touches up against that fascinating uh, dividing line between um, what people might say is malingering and what other people would say would be delusional belief or psychosomatic disorder. It's a fascinating little area of medicine that we we still aren't much close to kind of teasing apart, are we, really? It's a fascinating. I mean, looking at the character of Chuck, you might might look at him through a lens almost that some of his beliefs are delusional. Is that another possibility? It is certainly a possibility. Because I don't think he's... You wouldn't say that he's malingering would you? And when you say the psychological way of avoiding 21st century, I don't think you're referring to outright uh, lying or um, dissembling or malingering, are you? talking about sort of a a psychosomatic process that would happen at an unconscious basis? Is that what you're referring to? Look, Chuck is certainly not malingering in the series. In fact, when the situation demands it, he can at great personal expense rise to the occasion. We're into series two now and when he has to get out to close a deal with his law firm, he will put on the front. He'll don the three-piece suit and present in court and you'd have no sense that there was anything wrong. But when that's over, the personal price that he pays for that exposure is, is quite terrible. So he's certainly not malingering. You know, in fact, he's got many reasons to be out there and managing his law firm because there's clearly great sums of money at stake and the lifestyle that he's constructed for himself <coughs> is, is really quite impoverished compared to what he could be enjoying. But yes, certainly a delusional disorder is the differential that occurred to me when I uh, initially thought of of Chuck. Uh, a delusional disorder is distinct from schizophrenia in that there tends to be only one delusional belief present. And uh, if you're looking for a definition of delusion, uh, a simple way of thinking about it would be a fixed false belief that's not amenable to modification despite heaps of evidence being presented that what you contend simply cannot be true. So if you look at the EMS sensitivity of Chuck, you know, there's 25,000 articles reviewed by the World Health Organization that proves almost conclusively that this is not a genuine response to electromagnetic radiation, but in spite of the evidence to the contrary, Chuck believes this. So it could be a delusional disorder, what's called a monosymptomatic delusion, and again, as distinct from schizophrenia, people who have single delusional beliefs They tend not to be overly bizarre, like we're being chased by aliens, for example, but they could be true. You know, things like the delusion that your partner is having an affair, for example. That certainly could be true, despite evidence being produced to show that it's not. Uh, Chuck firmly believes that his symptoms are caused by electromagnetic radiation. 
There's a wealth of evidence to the contrary, but he still believes that it could be conceptualised as a as a delusional disorder. But probably it falls better under the the sort of umbrella of what are called somatoform disorders in psychiatry. You know, and just whilst you're talking about this, I'm thinking about the the, the, the windmill debate, and uh, I mean, m- most of those people would not be considered delusional, but they would have <clears throat> overvalued ideas about the risk of living near windmills and there is wind farms wind wind farms yeah Yeah. i mean there's a great deal of evidence now um that these are not deleterious to people's health and yet there's a body of people who strongly believe um well, look, if you have an unexplained symptom and the doctors can't give you an explanation for the symptom that makes sense to you, then people look for their own explanations and uh, it's, it's something that they can, can hang their hat on mm-hmm. that's, that proves as an explanation for them and that may be the case with Chuck. Mixiff. Yeah, yep. well, we'll follow Chuck or uh, as we call him Butch, um, <laughs> we'll follow his uh, his progress through series two of uh, of Better Call Saul and for those of you who, uh, who haven't watched it, it's available on uh, on Stan, and I think Series One is now being played on FX. So, uh, if you've got access, you are listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back to Radio Therapy, and uh, it's Mother's Day, and uh, you're here with um, with Anabolics SK. Uh, Kentus Maximus on the panel and uh, myself, Sigmund McZiff. And uh, the theory goes on Mother's Day, it's the one day of the year when we publicly acknowledge with love and affection everything that our mothers do for us all year round. And like Valentine's Day and Father's Day, it's a great day for retail outlets. It's also a lot of fun for many, and uh, but it can be a trying day for some, as not all mothers fit the greeting card model, and uh, um, Mother's Day can be a tough day when there are mixed or ambivalent feelings, and, uh, and uh, you, um, you often see this in therapy um, with your with your patients, Mother's Day can be um, can be a difficult day uh, in anticipation leading up to um, <clears throat> to Mother's Day itself, and then afterwards after <clears throat> after the Mother's Day celebrations. Excuse me, <clears throat> and it can be a tough gig for mothers too, because not. Every mother is naturally maternal, and not every child is a little angel. And days such as this may well focus on, um, well, so unresolved transgenerational issues. Now, there have been a couple of really interesting articles on Mother's Day in the Daily Press. And uh, John Elder in today's Sunday Age looked at the history of Mother's Day, which I actually found quite fascinating. Um, The Mother's Day of today has feminist roots. Uh, In the 1850s, a West Virginian woman's organizer, Anna Reeves Jarvis, established Mother's Working Day clubs to improve sanitary conditions and to try to reduce infant mortality. When the American Civil War broke out, these uh, women assisted wounded soldiers on both sides. And after the Civil War, uh, Anna Reeves Jarvis organized Mother's Friendship Day picnics in what was part of a pacifist campaign hoping to unite former foes. And in the 1870s, the suffragette poet Julia Ward Howe encouraged women to be more active, promoting those pacifist notions. And she proclaimed, Our husbands shall not come to us reeking of carnage for caresses and applause. Now, that's an, it's a, it was a very interesting uh, notion at the time. And then the, the commercialization of Mother's Day was the unintended consequence of a campaign run by, uh, by Anna Reeve Jarvis's daughter, also Anna, Anna Jarvis, to establish an annual celebration of motherhood. And then, and th- this sort of built up, and from 1914, the second Sunday in, in May has been the official Mother's Day holiday. And not surprisingly, business sniffed an opportunity, so flowers, cards, gifts, chocolates became a ritual. And Jarvis 
was appalled by this, and she established Mother's Day uh, International Association, and there were boycotts and lawsuits, and on one occasion, she even physically assaulted Eleanor Roosevelt, the first lady, who turned Mother's Day into a charity fundraiser. So there was a lot of political going on. Um, Elder finished his article pointing out that Anna Jarvis uh, continued to fight against the commercialization of Mother's Day until she was placed in a sanitarium in the 1940s, suffering from dementia. So, um, uh, and visitors, no doubt, um, um, had the good sense not to bring her roses, according to Elder. So... Um, so really an interesting backstory to Mother's Day. And then in, in yesterday's uh, age, Andrew Masterson wrote of the complicated underpinnings to notions of, um, of motherhood. He referenced the work of a psychologist, uh, Eric Newman, who was uh, said to be an acolyte of Carl Jung. And in, in 1952, Newman wrote of um, humanity's Progress starting with the matriarchal stage with feminist concepts and deities, the Egyptian goddess Iris and the Indian goddess Kali. And this gave rise to the notion of, of, of the great mother. And uh, now, interestingly, where um, uh, Masterson goes is that uh, it, uh, he, he talks about this, the notion of the great mother then being blamed for the weak, dweeby men who, who we see in all sorts of organizations because they, they become inculcated with the, 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 the great mother matriarchal notions of, uh, of the corporation where they're working. And these, these, <laughs> these dweeby men whose Adult development is retarded with excessive concern for security, a lack of independence, self-emasculation, and an inability to assume responsibility for one's actions. Who, who are you quoting there? Who says that? Uh, that was um, uh, that, that was uh, an ex- in, in, in uh, an extension of the um, uh, the, the argument. Um, Raised originally raised by Eric Newman and uh, and then taken on board by others, well, <laughs> as as the great mother of this panel. <laughs> Um, this is a classic straw man argument. Uh, you, if you, you you can't come to what a magnificent phrase. Don't come to me smelling of carnage, wanting applause and caresses. What a fabulous what a fabulous phrase. And, and that's what we're talking there about in the in the eighteen seventies after the bloodiest war in history, probably. Um, and this is the this is the whole idea. If you are a man and you don't support you know fighting and boxing and butchness and unemotionality and all that stuff, you must be. There's nothing in between. There's no middle ground. There's, you know, you, you're either with us or against us. And it is utter bullshit that our <laughs> boys get oppressed by. And I'm going to fight against it anywhere <laughs> I hear it. <laughs> Off you go, SK. Kill me. Knock me down. <laughs> no, no. I was, I was just going to uh, try and link in this concept in psychoanalysis of the vagina dentata. Oh. Is, is that a, a real, <laughs> you're not, a, not psychoanalytically oriented <laughs> anabolics, where, uh, you know, men are so almost literally emasculated by the, uh, the toothed jaws of femininity. <laughs> Uh, it's just it is it is it's such a level of bullshit that it's be, it, it is beyond my dignity to respond. So to. well, now with all of the mothers lying back in bed and and, uh, and uh, enjoying their burnt toast this morning, I'm going to take this away from men because really this isn't about men. This Thank is about you. women. And now feminist writers, including um, uh, well, well, they've been. They, they, there's been a lot of articles about the the confounding of womanhood and womanhood and motherhood, yes. and uh, and in um, uh, th- th- what's happened is that that in America in particular there has been the 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 mummy wars. So there's been all of this talk about can a mother can a good mother actually embrace the commercial world, the working world. Can you be a good mother and be at work or must you be a stay-at-home mother who is attending to all of the earthly needs of your, uh, of your children? And there's been a lot, of, um, uh, a lot of negative comment on both sides. So this is an, this is an ongoing battle. And, uh, and, um, and so anabolics, as someone who has straddled 
Real, I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's an interesting word, but 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 who has who has straddled both worlds? So you've been you've been a mother and you've been very successful in the medical world. Okay. Well, look, leave us leave aside that there could be discussion of the same thing about fatherhood to one to one side. No, we couldn't. Well, it's okay, Mother's good, Day. Yeah, I know. So I, my my feeling on this is that every woman, every family has to make their own decision about what works for your children, what works for your own desires and dreams, and what works for your own family. If you want to be a new nuclear physicist and have no children, good luck to you. I wish you the best and don't take shit from anybody. If you're a nuclear it's physicist, it's probably best that you don't have children, I would have thought. <laughs> or have them early, <laughs> at least. Yeah. I'll keep your gown on. Uh, if you want to be an earth mother to ten children, make sure you can afford them. Go, go make scones, do whatever you want and love it and be a fantastic and don't give shit to anybody who isn't doing anything else. Women have got to support each other and men have got to support those women and it's really not much more complicated than that. Everybody makes their own decision and we sh- there's no there's no reason to have mummy wars we don't need to fight each other we've got enough to fight without fighting each other we should support each other no matter what our decisions are well here ended the reading it sounds very sunday doesn't it's it very sunday but <laughs> now, now the the american anthropologist john bamberger in 1974 wrote the myth of matriarchy is but the tool used to keep women bound to her place to free her we need to destroy the myth so Agree, disagree. Uh, the, the myth of matriarchy meaning a matriarchal society or a matriarchy in the home? Do you mean? Do you, what does she mean by? I, I think matriarchy in the home. I think she's talking about there. I don't think we need to destroy much at all. I think we need to build. I think we need to build a capacity. We need to build flexibility in the workplace. We need flexibility in, in childcare. We need flexibility with men's capacity to have uh, part-time work and be able to share housework and share child rearing. You need you need flexibility. You need to build these things. This is not something you have to destroy. Women are going to be mothers or not mothers, depending on what they want to be, and they're going to be good and bad mothers, you know, in every society. All you can do is do the best you can. You, you may not, you, you can have it all. I do really think you can have it all. It's just very hard to have it all at once. You've got to pace yourself, and there's going to be times when you're going to put <coughs> effort into one thing and times when you put effort into another. But I don't think you should be, we shouldn't be talking about breaking down anything. Women rock, you know. Mothers and I, rock. And I think that one of the things about the mummy wars is the um, the fact that, People doing things one particular way mm. are often heavily criticised by members of the other group mm. for what they're doing, and I think that that um, really doesn't take into account the diversity of opinions and the, the, the really the broad range of approaches that uh, that people can take in this in this fascinating multifaceted world in which we live. And sometimes it's not a bad choice. Some people haven't got any choice but to exactly. go to work. You know, you know, five days a week, and they've got no. They may have no partner. They may have no. They may have the, the father of the children might have been disappeared five years ago and not providing any cash. Then you know, it's not all about choice. Sometimes it's about what you have to do and make the best of it and support each other. And, and, and final at, word. At the risk of invoking yet another inappropriate uh, psychoanalytic <laughs> concept, we don't have to be the world's best mothers or fathers. We just have to be good enough mothers. Good enough. Good enough. And on that, on that <laughs> note, um, the Winnicottian note, um, <laughs> What uh, what a lovely way to spend a Mother's Day morning with uh, with Anabolics, SK, Kentus, and uh, this is McZiff. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We're going to hand over now to the scientists who are uh, also very excited to be here and uh, uh, have a wonderful Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. And uh, radiotherapy will be back next week. <laughs>